Good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Kayla Harden, and I serve as your new pastor of Congregational Connections here at Eastside. So do you guys know how there are some, there are some days that kind of carry extra expectations? Like, are any, is anybody a big birthday people? Like your birthday is a big celebration. Yeah, you've got expectations for your birthday. Come on, guys, let's be interactive. Let's see some hands. Yeah, birthday people? Yes, there we go. So in my house, we joke about how my, I have such great expectations for my birthday. I even, I even joke with my husband about how we don't celebrate a birthday. We celebrate birthday month for Kayla. And, you know, I'll pause for Father's Day and give my husband a little bit of time. But for the most part, we celebrate birthday month. And I've got big expectations for that. Or maybe, maybe in your house it's Christmas. You have really big expectations for Christmas. You, maybe you have expectations that this new toy you got your child, that they'll play with it for longer than 15 minutes before they get bored with it and they'll enjoy it. But you know, I think that of all the days that carry extra expectations, the day that might have the most expectations on it is a wedding day. You know, we spend months and maybe even years planning our weddings. We throw untold amounts of money trying to make our wedding happen. I know for me, I walked into my wedding day with a lot of expectations. My husband, he's an accountant, and so I joke that he has taught me the way of the spreadsheet. And so we went into our wedding with schedules and spreadsheets, with plans and expectations. And as you can imagine, it did not go the way I expected. About an hour before the ceremony was supposed to begin, I felt nauseous. And soon that nausea developed into full-fledged vomiting, and all of my energy was spent trying to keep that expensive, beautiful white dress from getting dirty. Thankfully, with the help of some medicine, I was able to shakily make it down the aisle to say the vows to commit to the life that I now have with my best friend. But after we said I do, the plan was that we were going to dance back down the aisle to start our life together. Yeah. And so as my husband went forward and I leaned back to fish hook him and reel him in, disaster struck. The zipper popped out of the back of my dress and it began to unravel. I froze trying to hold the dress in place so that it wouldn't fall until my new husband could come and clasp it together so that I could make my way down the aisle and out of the sanctuary. The day did not go as I expected. For many of us, we have days that don't go as we expected, but then there's also seasons or maybe life isn't quite what you've expected. As you can tell, we're in a series called Live Your Best Life. But what do you do when the best life you dream of doesn't match your current life? What do you do when the way God is working in your life doesn't meet your expectations? Last week, we were blessed with Pastor Preston sharing with us to uh, dream of what our best life looked like. And then he encouraged us to look uh, deeper into God's presence to find that best life. But this morning, we're going to talk about kind of that disconnect between the best life that we think we should have and when it doesn't match up to the life we do. Maybe we pray and we pray for healing and yet the healing doesn't come. 
Maybe we pray and we pray for this new job and yet it doesn't come. Or it just takes a long time. What do we do when the way God works doesn't match what we expected? Last time I was here, I shared with you that I love stories. And this morning, I have another story that I want to share with you. It comes from 2 Kings chapter 5. Now, our story takes place during the time of kings and of prophets. The land has a famine going on, so food is scarce and hard to come by. And at this point, Israel's monarchy had fractured into two kingdoms, and they'd had multiple kingdoms for a, couple, for a few generations. And unfortunately, the kings, they had more bad kings than good ones. And so God would call these people called prophets to come and challenge the kings to be obedient, to call them back from their disobedient ways. And the prophet in our story is a man named Elisha. Now, Elisha had apprenticed under the prophet Elijah until his boss went up in flames, literally, and now he was more of a free prophet. Also in this story, we find a man named Naaman. Now, Naaman wasn't an Israelite. In fact, he was the general in the enemy army to Israel. He was a general in the, for the army of Aram, and he was successful. In fact, his army had defeated Israel, we're told. He was rich. He was successful. He was respected by the king. He was well-connected. He had the best life a man back then could imagine. But he had one major problem. Naaman had leprosy. Now, leprosy is a skin disease that, that keeps you from feeling things, and sometimes your extremities might fall off, and it didn't have a cure. So Naaman had an incurable disease. Also in our story, we're told about a young girl. Apparently a, a group of um, raiders from Aram went into Israel and they kidnapped this girl from her home and they brought her to live in their country and she was a servant in Naaman's household. One day she went to uh, Naaman's wife whom she served and said, I, I wish that Naaman would go to see this prophet in Samaria. I think that if he, could, if he did, he could find a cure for the uncurable disease. I think he could find healing from his leprosy. So Naaman took the news to his king. And because Naaman was Naaman, the king said, of course you can go. I'll even write you a letter of introduction to the king of Israel. Go ahead. And so Naaman, he loaded up several servants in his chariot and because Naaman was very, very wealthy, he took 10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold. Now to put that in perspective, that would be loading up a million dollars into your car and driving off. And so he began this journey to Samaria, but he stopped by the king of Israel first. Now we think that the king at this time was King Jehoram. And you can imagine that as Naaman made his way into the king's presence, how this tense history filtered the way they looked at each other. I mean, Naaman, Naaman was responsible for defeating Jehoram in battle. And even though they were in this little bit of peace right now, there was a lot of tension in the room. And so Naaman went forth and he brought the letter from his king and he gave it to King Jehoram. And as King Jehoram read the letter, his worst fears were realized. 
The letter said, here is my servant Naaman for you to heal him of his leprosy. The color drained from Jehoram's face. His heart began beating out of his chest and he exclaimed, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why did he send me, someone to cure of their leprosy? You know what? Don't you see it? He's trying to pick a fight with me. He knows I can't do it. He's gonna ask me to do it and then he's gonna use it as an excuse to start another war. King Jehoram tore his robes in frustration and anguish. Naaman was confused. You see, in Aram, the prophets worked for the king. So if the king wanted a prophet, he just dialed one up and they came. But what was happening here? Had he been chasing another fake healing? Was this prophet an urban legend that amounted to nothing? Naaman was despondent. But when Elisha heard what had happened, he sent word to the king and he said, why are you so upset? Just send him to me. And then he can see that there is a prophet in Israel. Naaman's hope was rekindled, but he didn't want to get his hopes up again. He packed up all of his money and the clothes that he brought and the servants, and he and his entourage made their way to Elisha's home. Whenever he stepped down from his chariot and went up to the door, he was thinking about the things he expected. This is it, he thought. This prophet, he'll come outside. I'll offer him some money to heal me. He'll probably wave his hands over the afflicted area. Maybe he'll even shout some magic words. And then we'll see if he's actually any different than the others who could heal me. But before Naaman could even knock on the door, it opened. Naaman looked the man up and down and said, are are you the prophet? No, he said. But I have word for you from the prophet. He says that you need to go to the Jordan River and dip yourself down seven times. Then you will be healed. Your skin will be restored. You will be clean. And he slammed the door in Naaman's face. Naaman was infuriated. Does he know who I am? I am rich, I am powerful, I am well-connected. I think he would have at least met me in person. He didn't even come out here to wave his hand over the afflicted area. He didn't stand to call on the name of the Lord his God. You know what? Another thing. We have better rivers than Aram. Why do I need to go wash in this foreign dirty river when I could have just stayed home and gotten in the luxurious rivers by my hometown? This has been a massive waste of my time. And he stormed off in a rage. Thankfully, Naaman's servants wanted to talk him down. They approached him and said, sir, if, if the prophet had asked you to do something like really hard, really difficult, you would have done it, right? Why not do this simple thing? Why not do this easy thing? Why not go to the river, wash and be cleansed? And so Naaman agreed that he would follow through on this and give it one try. He made his way down to the river, and as he was about to dip in, he said, this is it. If this doesn't work, I'm out of hope. I have an incurable disease, there's no cure. This is my last chance. 
And then he dipped himself down into the water seven times. And then when he emerged from the river after the seventh time, his leprosy had washed off, revealing clean, healthy skin. The Bible tells us it was like skin of a child, like the young servant girl who had told him about the healing in the first place. His hope hadn't been misplaced. He found healing in a true God who did things the fake gods and the idols he used to worship never could. And so Naaman loaded up his entourage and they made their way back to Elisha's home. This time, Naaman got down out of his chariot and assumed a position of respect for the prophet. And Elisha actually came out and met him outside. Naaman said, please, let me give you a gift to thank you. Now I know that there is no true God in all the world except the God of Israel. Please, just please take some of this money as a gift to thank you for healing me. But Elisha refused any gift. His assistant, a man named Gehazi, was standing by, and he was a little perturbed. I mean, could you imagine what we could do with even just a portion of that money in a time of famine? Elisha should take some of that. But Elisha stood by his refusal, and Naaman switched gears. He's like, well, can I ask you a favor? Can I have a request? Can I load up as much dirt from the land of Israel as possible so that I can take it back with me? Because you see, I know that there is no other God except the God of the land of Israel. So I want to take as much dirt from the land of Israel so I can worship the God of the land of Israel. And also, um, so I know that there is no other God. And I don't want to worship any other gods. But my master, the king, he, he worships this other god, this idol. And, and sometimes when he goes into the temple, he, he leans on me. And if he bows and I have to bow with him, can, can God forgive me for that? All Elisha said was, go in peace. Naaman, elated, began his journey back home. But Gehazi wasn't satisfied. What could we do with even just a bit of that money? I mean, he has more than enough. And you know what? He didn't even earn it. He doesn't deserve it. He made his money by conquering the land of Israel, by conquering our people. He doesn't deserve this money. You know what? As sure as the Lord lives, I'm going to get my hands on some of that money. So Gehazi began to chase after Naaman. When he caught up to him, Naaman got down out of his chariot Is everything okay, he said? Something wrong? When Gehazi caught his breath, he replied, no, nothing's wrong. A couple prophets came from the hill country of Ephraim, and my master wanted a couple changes of clothes and a talent of silver for them. That's it, Naaman said? Of course you can have that. Why don't you take two talents? And so he loaded up clothes and the silver, and he even had a couple of his servants walk with Gehazi back to help him carry the load that he had gotten. Before arriving back to Elisha's home, Gehazi took a detour. He stored away the clothes and the silver. He dismissed Naaman's servants, and then he went back to Elisha. Elisha looked at him and said, where have you been? Gehazi looked at Elisha, couldn't quite tell what Elisha was thinking, and so he decided to do uh, the best thing he could think of and lie. He said, I haven't been anywhere. Elisha looked at him and said, 
Is not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this really the time to take money or accept clothes or olive groves or vineyards or flocks or herds or servants? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Naaman had everything a man could have wished for in his time. He was rich, he was well-connected, he was well-respected, he was good at his job, but he also had leprosy. He had a disease where there was no cure. This summer, we've been exploring this idea of what it means to live your best life. But what do we do when the best life we dream of isn't the life we have? What do we do when God's work in our lives doesn't meet our expectations? For Naaman, he had expectations of what healing would look like. My guess is they were informed by past experiences of seeking out every healer or doctor in the land of Aram that he could find. And whenever Elisha, came, whenever Elisha told him something that was kind of contrary to what he believed, his reaction was almost to walk away, to walk away from it completely. Too often, we face a life that's different than the best life we dream for ourselves. Whether we don't get a job we were hoping for or our life turns upside down at a diagnosis, sometimes the life, our best life that we dream of isn't the life we have. Sometimes our expectations are not met. You know what, I would, I would imagine that the last 18 months did not go as anyone expected. But what do we do? In our story this morning, we learn about a few things that we can do when God's work in our lives might not be leaning, uh, lining up with what we expected. First, we can search for God in the midst of the struggle. Naaman probably sought healing from a lot of different places. And in his search for healing, he ended up finding something that was better. I mean, he was looking for a cure to an incurable disease, which is a big deal. But he ended up finding and encountering the God of the universe. He looked for healing, but then he found the God who could make the deaf hear and give sight to the blind. He found the God that could move mountains, that could part rivers down the middle. He found the God whose very words spoke the universe into being. He found something so much bigger. He found God. And for us, if we can't, we let, instead of letting our obstacles keep us from seeing God, we can find ways to search for his movement in the midst of them. As Christians, we were never promised an easy life. We get sick. We lose our jobs, we'll struggle financially, we suffer and hurt and grieve. But the amazing thing about following Jesus is that we go through not every, all of it that we go through, we never have to be alone. In the midst of our pain, we have the chance to search for God and to experience him in deep and meaningful ways. A few years ago, I found myself wading through the deep waters of grief. I went to the doctor one morning expecting to hear a heartbeat of a sweet baby. And instead I encountered the question, have you ever had a miscarriage? Pain, anger, grief flooded over me like a tidal wave. 
I remember being angry with God, asking him, how could you let this happen? I remember trying to bargain with God for a miraculous healing somehow. But one morning, when I was doing my devotional time, I came across the story of when God raised Lazarus from the dead. And in the story, we find Jesus, he's out with his disciples and, and he gets word that Lazarus is sick. And I mean, you know Jesus, like he could speak a word and he would have been fine, he would have recovered. He could have taken a detour and gone and healed Lazarus. But instead of doing any of that, he stayed away until Lazarus had been dead for four days. And when he finally made his way and he encountered Mary and Martha, when he saw the grief that they felt, the pain and the sorrow, Jesus wept. And in that moment, the shortest verse in the Bible spoke the greatest to me. When I was walking through sorrow, when I was walking through grief, I felt like Jesus understood. I felt like I wasn't alone in my pain. Because in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the struggle, God spoke to me in a new and beautiful way. I felt his presence wrap around me. I felt his love overwhelm me. When God's work in our lives doesn't meet our expectations, we can search for God in the midst of the struggle. When we are faced with obstacles, we have the chance to search for God's movement in the midst of them, to experience God in new ways that we might miss if we just get caught up in the obstacles and the suffering we face. Every challenge, every obstacle is an opportunity. We can look for God or we can lose hope. In our story, Naaman almost walked away. He almost lost hope. He almost walked away from his chance for healing and when he was first told about it, he responded with anger that was fueled by pride. But thankfully, Naaman had people to draw him back to his search. First, we have the servant girl who by all understanding should have been angry. She should have been bitter towards Naaman. I mean, it was him and his people that had torn her from her home. She had left everything she had ever known and now she was serving in his house. But instead of letting her life circumstances make her bitter or angry, she shared good news with Naaman that he could use to be healed. Then as Naaman is, uh, once he's heard about the healing, when he responds with anger or frustration, when he storms off and he's about to just leave it all behind and give up hope, his servants come to him and they remind him of this chance for healing. They encourage him to come back and to not give up. When life isn't working out the way you expected, who do you have in your life to encourage you to keep going? For me, when I was walking through my miscarriage, I had several friends who had, who had gone through a similar experience. I was able to tell them about my pain and they understood. But then I also had friends who were there to encourage me who hadn't walked through it, but they loved me and they loved Jesus. And so they helped me to walk towards God in the midst of it. And I think this is where the church can fit so beautifully. I mean, we're a group of people who are going through so much brokenness and life that maybe isn't what we expected, but you know what? We all follow Jesus. We can encourage each other to keep going when it gets tough. Finally, 
we have a chance to obey. When Naaman was told about his chance for healing, he kind of got stuck in the weeds a little bit. He kind of got stuck on the water. You know, when he just saw a simple dip in the water, God saw a chance, God saw a call for him to obey. When Naaman saw a frivolous action, God saw a chance to develop faith. When Naaman saw something pointless, meaningless, and demeaning, God saw a chance to draw Naaman to him and to exert his power over disease and death. Sometimes all we see is the water. We get caught up in the minutia. We just see the simple actions. But God sees our obedience as a way to reveal himself to us. We might think that it's simple. Maybe it's frivolous pointless. Maybe it's hard. Maybe it's embarrassing. But God can reveal himself to us through our simple acts of obedience. Before I moved to Indiana, I was a youth pastor for about six and a half years in Arizona. And I remember over and over again getting this question from my teenagers. What is God's will for my life? They didn't really like the answer because I told them it was simple. God's will for your life is that you know him and obey him. It's our acts of obedience that can reveal God not only to us, but to those who are around us. And in fact, in the New Testament, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will obey my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. Often in our lives, the way God works doesn't meet our expectations. It's natural to feel anger or frustration. But when our expectations aren't met, we have the chance to seek God. We can also surround ourselves with a community of people who will encourage us to keep going. We have simple acts of obedience that can lead God to reveal himself to us even more. Around the time of World War II, there was a young woman named Corey. She lived in the Netherlands. Growing up, her father was a watchmaker, and he taught her the trade. In fact, she, uh, in 1922, she became the first female licensed watchmaker in the Netherlands. She had expectations for her life. I bet that she expected to be a watchmaker, to one day own her father's business. But all of that changed when the Nazis invaded the Netherlands in May of 1940. Corey and her family had a choice. They could look out for themselves, take care of themselves, keep themselves safe and protected, or they could do what they believed God was calling them to do. And they chose the latter. They began to hide uh, Jewish refugees and resistance members in their home. She and her family, they became so well-known amongst the resistance that the resistance actually came to their home and built an extra room as an attachment to the room they were hiding the refugees in. And then they installed a buzzer system so that if the Gestapo ever came calling, they would give enough warning for people to hide. This room was called the hiding place, and it was estimated that around 800 Jewish refugees were saved by Corey Ten Boom and her family's efforts. Unfortunately, in 1944, an informant turned Corey and her family in, and they were arrested. 
They were sent to concentration camps where her father died shortly after arriving. Corey's sister also died in the concentration camp as well. But even this horrific turn of events didn't keep Corey Tin Boom from seeking God and trusting in him. In fact, she used a Bible that had been smuggled into the concentration camp to lead a Bible study at night. Twelve days after her sister died, Corey was released from the concentration camp due to what she found out was actually a clerical error. She found out that a week after she had been released, all of the girls her age had been sent to the gas chambers. Like many of us, Corey Ten Boom's life did not turn out the way she expected. She was going to be a watchmaker, the first female certified in her country. She had a bright future. But when life didn't turn out the way she expected, she was still faithful. And because of her faithfulness, so many lives were saved. Now, Corey's life story is much more extreme, but I hope that this encourages you to seek God, even when the way he's moving and working doesn't meet your expectations. Some of you might be listening this morning and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You had expectations for how God would work in your life. Maybe it's an illness that you faced. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's freedom from an addiction. And when God didn't work the way that you wanted, you started to doubt. And maybe, maybe you even chose to walk away. Naaman almost let his doubt lead, keep him from finding God, from experiencing God's power over disease and death. I hope, my prayer, is that you won't let the obstacles in your life keep you from experiencing God. It's okay to doubt sometimes. It's okay to have questions or to wonder why God's movement doesn't match your expectations. I encourage you to find people that can surround you and encourage you. Maybe people who have faced something similar to you or maybe just people who love you and love Jesus. For all of us, when we encounter those unmet expectations, we can find simple acts of obedience that God can use to reveal himself to us. Instead of focusing on the acts themselves, the way Naaman might have only seen a dip in the water, shift your focus to see a small act of obedience as a way to discover something new about God, but then also to reveal a little bit about God to those who are around you. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, our God, we stand in awe of who you are. You are the amazing creator of the entire universe. You spoke it into being. Lord, when our expectations don't match your working, I pray that you will help us to look for you. Pray that our struggles and our obstacles won't keep us from seeing you, but instead will encourage us to draw closer to you, to lean into your presence and to find new understanding of who you are. I pray that you will surround us with a community of people who love us and encourage us whenever things get hard, to not give up, but to continually seek after you. And Lord, I pray that you will reveal to us the simple acts of obedience I pray that you will use our little bits of obedience to reveal something new about who you are to us and to those who are around us. Lord, we thank you for the way that you are moving. We love you and we praise you. Amen.